Lord, we come to you now, and I, uh, I pray um, first a prayer of thanks that you are a God who has made yourself known, that you are near us, that your presence is real. It's not something we just talk about in some nebulous, wishy-washy way, but that you're here and you're present, and you give us your spirit that we might have understanding. So I'm thankful that you are so compassionate, so loving. Lord, I pray uh, for our time in the Word tonight that it would be pleasing to you first and foremost. Um, I pray for energy. I am crazy tired today, and apparently I'm not alone. And so uh, I just pray that you would allow us the spiritual diligence and the discipline to pay attention, to keep watch, to stand firm, and to persevere. Lord, we love you very much. I pray that the Holy Spirit would move and guide and warn and instruct as we go through Exodus 33 tonight. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A little bit of recap before we dive into the text. Why did Moses flip his lid last week? Yeah, the people went astray. And how did they go astray? Yeah. What'd you say? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a mess at the base of Mount Sinai. Full-on idolatry, made the golden calf, bowed down to it, uh, acting like hooligans, um, uh, they are falling back into the same things that they observed um, in Egypt, just very wicked, idolatrous, godless, fleshly worship of someone who's not God. In fact, something they made with their own hands in uh, their own desperation and godlessness. So Moses uh, freaked out a bit, and what did he do? Tasty beverage, yes. What became of the golden calf? Melted it? Yeah, ground him into powder, made him drink it, and it became what it should have become. Um, what did the shattered tablets represent? Yeah, breaking the law, it was the people's response to God's testimony. They essentially shattered it at the base of Mount Sinai, and when Moses came down, it was fitting for him to do the same with the actual tablets that were written on by the finger of God. What does idolatry do to our relationship with God? Yeah, it separates us. It drives between us that thing which we're worshiping. It doesn't Idolatry will never fuel us in our worship of the one true God because he, he demands to be worshiped alone. And so um, before we look at the text, what was the difference between Aaron and Moses in chapter 32? Yeah. Yeah, Aaron didn't put up a fight. Uh, Moses was appalled at what he saw. Essentially, Aaron had been much with people, and Moses had been much with God. And we see that their response to the sin and idolatry um, showed the difference between spending time with the Lord and spending time without God and with people. Um, 
Near the end of our study last week, we considered how the Bible says that we're to deal with sin. I want to touch on that just a little bit before we dive into 33. We looked at the phrase uncompromising and unsparing dealing with all that is dishonoring to God, with everything that savors idolatry. What we considered there at the end was it's not easy to address sin in another's life. And it's usually most difficult with those who are closest to us. So because it's difficult to address sin, because it's most difficult to address it with those who are closest to us, what we came to last week was that our view of the truth and our understanding of God's truth needs to be solid, firm, and stable. We need to be a people who are fully convinced as to what we believe. That's what it says in Romans 14. Don't be tossed to and fro. Don't be wishy-washy. Don't be okay with Jesus. Like be fully convinced, standing firm in that which you believe. So that when it comes time to address the sin that you have to address, like what was taking place at the base of Mount Sinai, you know you are standing on something that is firm and that is solid. And you don't get caught up in the same sin. And you don't have to be godless in your dealing of that sin. You stand firm because you're fully convinced, because that's what you're called to as a child of God. And the only way to address sin with that level of seriousness is to also be full of compassion like God. What did Moses do after he brings the sons of, the sons of Levi? He says, who's with the Lord? The sons of Levi come and stand by his side. They take their swords and they, and they kill 3,000 of their own people that day. 3,000. This is a response to, this This represents how we deal with sin. We do not dabble in it. We do not um, just allow it, depending on different, we, we put it to death. And so we take up the sword of the word and, and we go and we address sin with the sword of the word today. We don't kill sinners. We, we take up the sword of the word and we address it appropriately. And so he brings the sons of Levi or they come to his side, they do that. And then he ascends the mountain. And what does he say to God? That is just absolutely remarkable. Read it if you want, out loud. Spare them. Yeah, he, he says, The next day Moses said to the people, You've sinned a great sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not... Please blot me out of your book that you have written. That is a level of compassion for the people that goes beyond the level of compassion that you have for yourself. You hear that? Romans 9, Paul says, I'm, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for the sake of my kinsmen, that is the Israelites, my brethren, because they don't believe in God. He said, if there's a love that could express itself in forfeiting its salvation for the sake of brethren who might come into salvation, I would express that love. That's what Paul says. And it's the same thing we're seeing from Moses. He's full of compassion. And that's a compassion that we have to be full of when we are addressing idolatry and sin in our lives and in the lives of other people. Compassion, just like our God. Going to God regularly in prayer for those for whom your heart is burdened. If you're a person who loves to point at the sins in people's lives, call them out on it, but you are prayerless, you are lacking in compassion. Some people try to be the moral police. You ah, don't do that, you do that, don't do that. If you do that, and you are not a prayerful person going to the Lord, 
regularly lifting up those for whom your heart is burdened, you are lacking in compassion. And if we are more compassionate, we will address sin appropriately in the lives of those that we're walking with because we will see them as God sees them. C.A. Coates says, it was the same spirit of Christ which led Moses to take a decided stand in public against those who had allowed what was contrary to God. It was the same spirit that led him to go up and pray for them in secret with such intense yearning for their good. The man who takes the strongest ground against me when I am wrong and when I have set aside what is due to the Lord is probably the one who prays the most for me. How wonderful it would be if that's how we're functioning, that we can stand firmly against one another if we have to, if we're in idolatry and sin, because we are so full of love and compassion for each other that we are regularly lifting one another up in prayer. Remember the, the, uh, the ephod and, and then the, the rows of stones that Ben described out of Exodus, uh, I believe it was 28, where you're essentially bearing, regularly bearing up the names of God's children to God when you go to him in prayer, and it's written on your shoulders. You're lifting them up with your strength to take them before God because you're full of compassion and you care for one another. That leads us into Exodus 33, and the title of tonight's study is Leaving Sinai. Leaving Sinai. So let's read the chapter out loud. <coughs> the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. We've got a, this is a tension, a purposeful tension. Go to the promised land. That's good, right? But if I come with you, my presence will consume you because you're stiff-necked. There's a tension here that we need to feel as we read the rest of the chapter. Feel the tension of the promised land without God. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Try to picture this in your head. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. 
Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you. In order to find favor in your sight, consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. He said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand And you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Okay, moving on, leaving Sinai and how this is playing out. In verses 1 through 6, we see the people heard this disastrous word. What was disastrous and why was it disastrous? Yeah, God was leaving his people. That's a big deal. That should bother his people. Why else is it sad? Let's let's add on to that. Let's, Let's dig into that a little bit. Yeah, the reason he's leaving is because they're so wicked. Okay, what else? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Without his presence, they don't have his protection. They don't have his guidance. They don't have his shielding. They don't have his deliverance. They're on their own. It's like, do you want to be on your own? Give it a shot. That's what's going on here. It's pretty significant. A disastrous word indeed. Consider for a moment how significant it is to move from the base of Mount Sinai to the promised land. They're extremely different, the base of Mount Sinai and the promised land. When moving away from the base of Mount Sinai, what is Israel continuing to move away from? Say that again. God, if he doesn't go with them. Let's say you're an Israelite 10 years after the whole Mount Sinai, base of Mount Sinai incident. And someone says, hey, you remember what uh, Mount Sinai was like? Remember what happened at the base? Oh, yeah. What would they say that they moved on from? Hmm? Hmm? 
Yeah. Smoke, shaking ground, things that make people tremble. They saw, what did they see their brothers and sisters doing? Sons of Levi having to execute the justice of God with the sword because of the sin that they had fallen into. They'd watch the idolatry. They would look back and they could see that golden calf that they were, people were dancing around and living in full-on idolatry. They could see the godless that was, godlessness that was there. They would consider, they would think back to Moses shattering the tablets on the ground. There's so much that happens at the base of Mount Sinai that frankly, I would be excited to move away from it and move on, especially towards what do we know about the promised land? What is it a land of? Flowing with milk and honey. Yes, please. Things have not gone so hot at the base of Mount Sinai. Well, not so wonderfully at the base of Mount Sinai. And we get to move on to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That seems good in and of itself. Here we see a big difference between moving from the base of Mount Sinai and the promised land. If you're moving away from the base of Mount Sinai, you're actually continuing to move away from slavery. Think about all the things in Israel's past. Moving away from um, situations where God seemed very distant. Moving away from um, hard labor that you had to do in Egypt. Moving away from the fear of those who were attacking you. Um, moving away from the uncertainty of the Red Sea in front of you and an army behind you. They're moving away from these things and towards the promised land. And this is good. This is good. Israel was never meant to set up shop and live forevermore at the base of Mount Sinai. Israel was designed to move toward the promised land. That was their land that was promised to them, guaranteed to them by God. But at the base of Mount Sinai, there was idolatry, godlessness. There was slavery in Egypt before that. Enemies who once pursued them. Have you ever heard the phrase, I just want to put this behind us and move on? You ever heard that phrase? Ever used that phrase? Use that phrase today. I just want to put this behind us. I want to get on with my life. What are some versions that we have of moving on from Mount Sinai? Our own Mount Sinai's. What are some examples of, I just want to put this behind me and move on? You can be vague as you want to be. Examples nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah. Grief from death? Absolutely. What? Divorce? I just want to put this behind me and move on. Grief from death. What? Bad day at work. work. Today stunk. Put it behind us. Let's move on. What else? Past sins. That's not who I am anymore. Put it behind me. Move on. What else? A baseball game. (laughs) Who prayed for the Rangers today? Don't lie. Probably could use it. Lost six out of the last eight. Um, what else? Obstinate children. Let's put those days far behind us and move on in your obedience where you say, yes, sir. There's lots of different things we could want to put behind us and move on. Now, I want you to consider the option that Israel is being given here. I really want us to take this in. They have the option of leave the base of Mount Sinai and move to the 
promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the option of moving forward from Egypt, slavery, and idolatry. But what is missing? God. God in his presence. God being with them is missing. It is disastrous. It is a disaster upon disasters. If you are pleased with the promised land over the God of the promised land, it is a disaster if you are pleased with the promised land more than you are pleased with the God of the promised land. It is a disaster if you are pleased with relief more than you're pleased with the God of relief. It is a disaster if you are pleased with comfort more than you are pleased with the God of comfort. Jesus died and conquered death and absorbed God's wrath which was due to us for the sake of making a way for us to get to God. It's not just away from junk. It's to God. Christ died. He conquered death. He absorbed the wrath of God that was due to us because of our unrighteousness, which suppressed the truth. To provide a way to God. There are many who dream of heaven because of what it isn't. No pain, no fear, no tears, no heartache, no mortgages, no cruelty, no injustice, which are all great realities. I'm so thankful that we don't have to deal with those things in heaven. But heaven is not eternal bliss because of what isn't there. The promised land will not be wonderful because of what isn't there. It's eternal bliss because it is unhindered joy and the relationship that exists between God and his children through Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. John Piper wrote a book a couple years ago called God is the Gospel because so often we'll talk about you need forgiveness, you need to turn things around, you need to be a better person, you need to stop doing that thing, you need to stop doing that thing. But it says nothing about God. Like we're being brought to God. We belong to God. If I leave this stuff behind me and I move forward and I'm okay with doing that without God, it is a disaster. A disaster. The point of the gospel, the point of forgiveness, the point of the death of Christ is not end in that. It brings us to God. That is the purpose of everything that we do, everything we study, who we are as a church, who we are as a people who proclaim a message. The message is that God welcomes those who are in Christ and he forgives them. He makes you new. There are some who go to God to try to fix a problem, to get your life back on track. There's a there's a, a pattern that, that's been observed by sociologists and stuff where um, many people go to church and they're members of a church. The church is a people, not a building. So when I say go to church, I'm using lingo that's just familiar to culture, but um, they'll go maybe through their, you know, their kids so their parents make them go. And then in high school they go. And then once they turn 18 and they're gone, they don't darken the doors again of the church until they have their own children They freak out a little bit, realize having kids is hard, and they say, you know what, I want my kid to grow up in a church like I did. Then they go back. And so from 18 to, you know, 25, 30, 35, you see people who who are not with God, and they're trying to just get things back in order. They're trying to do something good for their families. It's not bad to do something good for your family. But if you join a church, and you turn from the bad and you put the negative things behind you, there's still joy that is lacking if your trajectory is not Godward. There's still something that's missing. There's still a void. There's still a hole. 
There's still a, a dissatisfaction that you will have in your soul if it's not putting those things behind me and moving Godward. Repentance itself is a turn from the bad and a moving toward God. Israel had the opportunity to put Sinai and slavery behind them and to move toward the promised land. But to do so without the God of the promised land is disastrous. How does Israel's identity differ from every other nation of the world at this point? God's chosen nation. They are God's people. Israel is God's people. How does the Christian's identity differ from the non-Christians? Same thing. Same thing. If you're sitting there thinking, I don't know, how has it changed? It hasn't changed. There's no shift. It hasn't been tweaked over the years to make it a little more culturally sensitive. You are God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a nation for his name, drawn out of darkness and into marvelous light that you would proclaim his excellencies. That's who you are. You are different. You are known because of the fact that you belong to God. The presence of God is everything. There's a question that I heard a while back, and it it sticks with me, and I go to it regularly. If you put your hand to something, and God's not a part of it, would you even know it? If you put your hand to something, I'm going to try this. I'm going to move in this. I'm going to have some endeavor. I'm going to do something. If you put your hand to it, and God's not in it, would you even know that God wasn't a part of it? And how? Is it your time in the Word? Is it your time in prayer? Do you care about His closeness? You care about proximity when it comes to your relationship with God. Look at verses 7 through 11. The tent of meeting. Um, I read this earlier. You, you heard me read it out loud. My question is, what are the differences between the tabernacle and the tent of meeting? You can feel free to read through it again if you'd like. The differences between the tabernacle and the tent of meeting. Tent of meeting was temporary. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. What else? What about location? How does it differ? Outside the camp, and where was the tabernacle supposed to be? Smack dab middle. Okay, there's differences here. What does the tent of meeting reveal about Israel's relationship with God right now? It's not at the center. It's interesting here because God's outside of the camp, meeting with him, with Moses at the tent of the, at the tent of meeting. And those who want to worship, how do they do so? Yeah, you stand at your tent, you watch. When you see that pillar come down, you know he's, you know he's face-to-face with, with Moses and you, and you worship God. Now, consider also the love that God shows to the nation of Israel by communicating with Moses in such an intimate way. What does it say? How does he communicate with Moses? Face-to-face like a friend. I went to lunch today with Kyle Lauder. We sat and we spoke face to face at a table. I just, I thought, God spoke to Moses face to face. That is a level of intimacy, a level of compassion that is unmatched. And it shows how much he loves the nation of Israel. 
because he communicated with Moses in such a way. Now, what is it that invokes worship in these verses? What invokes worship in these verses? Do they sound a bell? Yes. Yes. God showed up. His presence is seen. He's back with them. They see that at the tent of meeting. And how do they see it? How, do, how does, like, I'm looking, I'm standing at the, the door of my tent, and I look out outside the camp where the tent of meeting is, and what am I looking at? A pillar. That's crazy. Oh, look, God's here. We see this, and I mean, this is so remarkable. Now, um, God's presence in the cloud is what invokes the worship of his people in these verses. It was invoked from a distance. Invoked from a distance. I want you all to see that Christ has brought us near. For those who are Christians, who are children of God, who say, I'm a follower of Jesus. He is my Lord, my Savior, my treasure. It's not like this for you now. You have been brought near. You've been brought close because of Christ. You are close to the Lord. You no longer need an intercessory or a mediator between you and God. And as a people, we are called to enjoy the nearness of God. And it's interesting because this speaks of evangelism. As you enjoy the nearness of your God, you enjoy how close you are to your God, people from far off will look and see that. And for some of them, it will invoke their worship. They will be drawn into it. They'll say, what is that? I mean, you've got to imagine someone, the first time they saw the pill, what is that? And it was explained, that's God. He's in our presence. Okay, I'm worshiping God. This is a picture of evangelism. As a people, we're called to enjoy the nearness of God. And as we do, there are those who are far off who will be drawn to worship the one who was once viewed in a cloud. It's a, another way we've said that before is that the long arm of evangelism is a healthy church. It's not schemes, it's not just programs. There are good programs, good thoughts, good structures you can put in place for evangelism, but ultimately the strongest evangelistic tool is you enjoying your God who is near and enjoying that relationship, enjoying that presence and moving accordingly in obedience. That is what people will see and hear and smell that will be sweet to some and an aroma of death to others. But for some, it will invoke worship, just like here, the thing that invokes worship is they see that God's present in the lives of his people. Now, look at verses 12 through 13. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, yet you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Okay, that's really wordy, and I want to try to, sometimes if you take something in Scripture and just try to summarize it a little bit, it, it makes a little more sense. And I would summarize this for the sake of studying it like this. Moses desires to know God's ways in order to find favor in God's sight for the good of God's people. You hear that? Moses wants to know God's ways, which means knowing God, to find favor in God's sight for the good of God's people. That's what's going on here. Now, how does this differ from the way that many of us approach God? His way is, I want to know your way so that I can know you, so that I can find favor in your sight for the good of your people. That's the approach that he's taking to God here. 
How do some of us approach God in a different way, wrongly? Yeah, I want to know you. I want to know your ways. But ah, it's for me. It's for my good. What else, how else might we do it? Yeah, maybe skip one, two, and three, and just I just want favor. Give me favor. What else? We're commonly guilty of approaching God the wrong way. We have to keep an eye on this as a people. Um, he's not our heavenly bellboy. Something's needed. Oh, God. It's not Naamanism. Remember Naamanism we talked about in a sermon a couple months ago? Wave your hand over my problem and make it better, please, God. That's difficult because if something in my life stinks and is miserable, yeah. I want to go to God and say, hey, God, this stinks and it's miserable. Please take it away. He's full of compassion, but his compassion is so abounding that it cannot be limited to just the thing that you're facing. He cares deeply about it, more than you could ever imagine. He's paid attention to every detail before you pay attention to any of the details. But when we pray, we can't only pray for ourselves and our own issues. We have to go to God to know his ways, to know him, to find favor in his sight for the good of his people. It's a corporate event. It's a group effort. There's a difference between wave your hand over my problem and come to me so that you can know me and understand my ways, my ways and gain my favor, which will inevitably be a blessing to others. When you obey God, it's a blessing to other people. That's a blessing to other people when you obey God. This verse is also a good reminder that our faith is not just about us and our, our private relationship with God. I can't talk right now. Blah. Our relationship with God is bigger than just my private issues with him between he and I. Our story is the story of a people. How often do we pray for ourselves above how often we pray for others? When's the last time you prayed for just Christians as a whole? We try to make it a point every Sunday morning at Crosspoint to pray for other churches, local churches in the community to show this is a group effort. Same team, same team. So we used to say when we would play football as kids and, and you'd choose teams and you did it every day and sometimes someone was on your team the previous day and they're not on your team that day and it, and it gets confusing and you're running down and someone's coming at you like, oh, it's on and they're going to tackle you. And it's same team, same team, please don't hit me. Same team. Other local churches, Christians, same team. How often do you pray for Christians as a whole? And are we eager for God to continue to consider his people? Just that prayer. God, consider your people. Do we pray like that? Do we have that view that's bigger than our, wor our little world with our problems? Our world and our problems are extremely significant to God. He is so full of compassion, but I want you to see he's so full of compassion that he cannot be contained in your world with your problems. He tends to them completely and totally because you're a part of his people who he is also tending to completely and totally. Look at verses 14 through 16. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. 
For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Again, God's presence is what makes us distinct. What is another way to say distinct? Set apart? known attention drawn it's distinguishable different for a reason sanctified recognizably different how about holy that's what I think when I see distinct holy set apart for a reason not just for the heck of it for a reason for a purpose you should want to be distinct if you some people just kind of have a natural tendency to want to just blend in, don't want to rock the boat, don't want to stir the pot. I just kind of want to be here. Some of us, the verse about work quietly and tend to your own affairs, that's a good verse. Some of us take that too far. And it's like, I don't need to be known. I don't want to know anybody. I'm just cool being on my own. I'm fine. I watch my kids. Some of them are very loud and outgoing. One of them is not. She's very to herself. She can sit and color and sing and dance all day, just by herself, keeping to herself. Now, distinct here is holy. It's set apart for a reason. And for those of us who don't want to be distinct, we have to fight against the flesh where it's winning and it's taking away from our distinctiveness as a person of God. Now, um, in these verses, what else does God's presence provide for us? Rest, praise Jesus. Everyone in this room confessed that you're sleepy before we started. God provides rest for us. Um, many of us look for rest in other areas. What are some of those other areas that we seek rest of types? Naps, yeah, sleep is the first one I'm thinking of. What else? TV. Yeah, I've had to recently check myself on that. It's the end of the day. I want to turn my brain off and watch something that means nothing. Yet, I end up getting drawn into it and tense and stressed out. And I'm not resting at all. And if I am resting, it's not good resting. TV, what else? Books, yeah. Some of us would love to be in a room full of books where no people ever enter. Some of us love that. You got to fight against that. It's good. Read. But take what you're reading and apply it to people. What else? What else do we look for rest in? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe busy bodies, but not busy at good kingdom-oriented things. What else? What is this stuff? Just... Like, I, I have a weird thing with office supplies. So I'm having a bad day, and I go to Staples, and I look around, and I buy a new pen or eraser or stapler or something, and I feel better. I can look for rest in office supplies. Now, y'all know. I, uh, I'll, I'll leave my man card by the door. That's fine. It's, it's pretty bad. Um, what I'm getting at is that though it may seem difficult, for those who are already weary, though it may seem difficult for those who are already weary, 
true rest must be tirelessly pursued in God. True rest. It's his presence that gives rest. I'll confess, for the last six months, I have struggled with feeling like God's far off. I know that he's not, but I have struggled with it feels like it sometimes. I'm seeing things go on. I am praying. I am trying to do things, and I get distracted, and I feel like maybe God's far off, and he doesn't hear, and I'm tired, and I'm tired, and I'm tired. But what I want you guys to hear tonight is that though it may be difficult for one who is already weary, true rest must be tirelessly pursued in God. You read the word and you pray. You read the word and you pray. If he doesn't feel any closer, you know what you do after that? You read the word and you pray and you don't isolate yourself. You don't isolate yourself. Those who are guilty in the Corinthian church, one of the things they were guilty of was that they neglected to meet together. So you could say, read the word, pray, meet with other Christians. Read the word, pray, meet with other Christians. It's a cycle that you will never graduate from. Christian people, it is a cycle that you will never graduate from. Yes, I remember early in my, my Christian infancy when I would read my Bible and pray, but now I just hover, wait for the Spirit to fall upon me. It's not how it works. You don't ever graduate from that. You read your Bible, you pray. And in verses 17 through 23, this is where Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And he says, I will put you in the cleft of a rock and I will pass before you. Now, I believe there's two dynamics at play here. First, Moses doesn't fully understand what he's asking for. To want to see the glory of God completely means you don't understand the glory of God completely, though you desire a good thing. So he doesn't fully understand what he's asking for. And the second thing is Moses, I think he truly desires the nearness of God for the nation of Israel. He's already said, show me your way so that I can know you and I can find favor with you for the good of your people. So I think it, this is a, a corporate thing. It's not just Moses wanting to be close to God in a selfish way. I don't think he fully knows what he's asking for, but I do think there is a corporate pleading here where he wants God near the people for their good. Do you desire God so deeply that you would make such a bold request? Every time I read this, I ask myself, do I desire God the way Moses does? I want you to know that if you desire to know God, we know him through the power of Christ and the work of the Spirit, and it is possible, but it takes discipline. Knowing God takes discipline. There's, it's a lie to say, all you have to do is this, this, and this. Done. That's a lie. Knowing God takes discipline. Growing near to God takes discipline. That's why he has created us. Their physiological makeup, the way that chemicals work between my heart and my brain and my hands and my feet, the way it all works is that you are not conformed to the world but transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may know the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He's designed you. He's knitted you together in such a manner that it takes effort to know him, to grow in Christ's likeness, putting sin to death. It's not... Putting anything to death takes effort. Putting sin to death certainly takes effort. Growing in Christ's likeness, he didn't sin. He was perfect. He submitted to God in everything completely. So this takes work. It's possible. It takes discipline. But that's why he gives us the spirit. He did not give you a spirit of timidity and fear, but of power and strength for you to walk in. And it's possible. 
It has never been God's design to just get his children saved and then never hear from them for their entire lifetime until the very end when they're about to die. He calls us to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey his commands. That's what he says, teaching them to obey. That's, that's a lifelong group effort. It's, in fact, it's not enough for a, a pastor, elder, preacher to stand up and say, this is what it means to obey. That's a proclamation and it is good, but to teach you to obey is a whole nother ball game. I can tell my kids, don't do this, do this. But sometimes I have to take their hand and help them and show them and walk with them and love them. And that's what we do. That's the ministry that we've been equipped for. We are equipped for a work of ministry, and a lot of it's to each other, and it's to those who are God's children who do not know that they're God's children yet. Through obedience to God's commands, we grow to understand God and experience his closeness, and there is true joy in obedience. And according to 2 Timothy 3, without reading my Bible and praying, I am incompetent and I am unequipped for the good works that he calls us to as his children. The last thing I want us to look at is What does God proclaim in those verses? In verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. What does he proclaim? His name. Why? Say that again. He gets the glory. Why else? So they would know it, they would get it right, they would know this is not a golden calf, this is not a figment of your imagination, why else? Yeah. Yeah, he's setting an example for us and we are created in his image. The thing I want us to see is real simple. There's nothing greater to proclaim God is going to pass before man with, who's in the cleft of a rock, who can't even look at him face to face, but with a back toward him, and he's going to make himself known. He's manifesting his presence with his people. What else is he going to say other than his name? There's nothing. What are his other options? Go team. Yay, Israel. That's not going to cut it. It has to be the Lord, Yahweh. King of kings, Lord of lords, I am here. I got nothing better to give you than myself. That's what he's saying here. Chapter 33 is a remarkable chapter. We're going to see a take two next week on the tablets, a, uh, like a do-over, a mulligan um, for, the, for the tablets is what we're going to look at. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now, and uh, I, I just, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the things you show us. I pray that if any of us are sitting here dependent upon ourselves, unwilling to submit to you, more concerned about our own glory than your glory, indifferent to your closeness, and arrogant in our sin, I pray that you would let it weigh heavily on our hearts what you've shown us in this verse. That as we move forward from our own base of Mount Sinai experiences, our own sin, our own falling short, as we move forward in that, it's, an, it's a disaster to do so without you. Our circumstances are no longer just our circumstances. Everything we do, everything we say, every endeavor, every 
hope and repentance and every clamoring toward redemption and reconciliation, all of it has to do with the presence of our God, which makes us distinct. Lord, let us be distinct because of your presence. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.